at verse 21. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 21. As I hope you recall, last week we studied a powerful section of Scripture when Jesus asked that all-important question of his disciples. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? As I said last week, I think that's probably the most important question in the Bible. But when he asked that, it was only to be correctly answered by Peter, who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him and told him, that didn't come from you, Pete, that was from my dad. He gave you that, and he commended him that. And then after discussing the foundation of his church and the fact that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, as well as the keys of the kingdom binding and loosing and an exhortation for them to not tell anyone what they just learned, that Jesus is the Christ, our Lord continued to speak to them about close, intimate things that he hadn't shared before. So we pick it up now in verse 21. Let me just check one thing. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This must have been, a, been shocking news for the disciples. They had no idea that Christ's death was coming so close and in such a bad way right after they finally fully understood that Jesus is the Christ, the last thing they expected was that he would suffer many things and be killed. Yet, this was the prophesied mission of the Messiah. And we have read numerous times in Isaiah 53. He must suffer and die at the hands of his own people. And he must, after his death, be raised the third day. The disciples still didn't understand Jesus' true purpose in this, his first appearance, because of their preconceived notions, actually the preconceived notions of everybody in Israel. Because of those, the last thing they expected was that he would suffer many things and be killed. They had these preconceived notions regarding what the Messiah should be and what he should do. But this is the first of three times that Jesus told them of his coming death in Matthew's Gospel alone. The torture, mocking, and crucifixion of Jesus had to happen because of two foundational facts. One, mankind's sin. And the other, God's love. 
Jesus' death was necessary because of man's sin against God. It had to be paid for. But his death was also the ultimate demonstration of God's love for mankind. Just a quick reference, you know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that's whosoever should believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. Clear statement of God's love for mankind. This was also necessary because it showed Jesus' voluntary submission to the will of his Father. And as we'll see as we go on this morning, that voluntary submission to the will of the Father is also required of us, of you and me. Then, right at this moment, when Jesus told them of his impending crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Peter had the effrontery to actually rebuke Jesus. Now just think about that for a second. <laughs> he actually rebukes Jesus. It's kind of like what he, he will do later on when he's on the, the roof of his friend Simon, uh, the tanner in Joppa, when the Lord drops down that image of that sheet full of unclean animals. And he tells Peter to rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is the Lord telling this to Peter. He commands Peter. What's Peter's response? Not so, Lord. Peter has this thing. Anyway, he actually rebuked Jesus, the one he had just proclaimed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter did it privately. He, it says he took him aside. But he was confident enough to tell Jesus that he was wrong to consider going to Jerusalem to be killed. Now, there are a lot of things we could say about Peter's action here. I could give a full sermon on it. about the why and the how of his reasoning that he would think it proper to do this. But Jesus, of course, had the right and perfect immediate response. Jesus actually cut him off and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you, do, you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. Wow. That's an incredibly strong response and rebuke from Jesus. But oh, so very important and necessary. Though just moments before, Jesus told Peter that he'd spoken as he was told by the Father he then spoke to Jesus as a messenger of Satan. Jesus knew, of course, that the devil didn't want him to fulfill his ministry on the cross. So Jesus had to cut it off quickly so as not to allow that evil purpose to succeed. There's no, there's no mention here or thought here or indication at all that, that Peter was wicked. But he, he was succumbing to the things of man, actually the things of Satan, and, and he had to be stopped. He can't allow somebody to talk him out of the mission that he had clearly received from the Father. Actually, in this case, 
we see God's word telling us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was actually planned by God from eternity past. By God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I point you, and if you have your cross-reference sheet, it's printed out for you. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. He's speaking of the Antichrist. And he says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Did you get that? The book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus' death, his crucifixion, was known as a part of God's plan before he created the earth, before Genesis 1-1. In a different way, we see John the Baptist in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. We read, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, you can say the rest of it, right? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why would John call him that? Why would John call Jesus the Lamb of God? That's a strange thing to say about the Messiah. But it's because John knew some things. Jesus' murder was no surprise to God, not to the Father, not to Jesus, and not to the Holy Spirit. It was part of God's eternal plan for the redemption of mankind. By the way, I have scriptures in your cross-reference that you could refer to for all of these things I'm saying. John the Baptist even knew this. He knew that it was part of God's eternal plan. He knew this because he applied the Old Testament requirements his requirements of a perfect lamb's sacrifice to temporarily atone for the sins of the people. Read that in Exodus, Isaiah, Hebrews, Jeremiah, 1 Peter. The Old Testament provided for that. It provided for the atonement of sins for individuals and for the nation temporarily. For a day, a week, a year, depending on the on the circumstances. But it was true that Jesus' sacrifice was not and would not be temporary, but would be once for all, never, never to need to be repeated. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, Hebrews 7, 26, 27, 9, 12, chapter 10, 10, and chapter 10, 12, and 14. It's a shame that the Roman Catholic Church never read that because they claim that, that their, 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 their mass, the Eucharist, the, the, the whole thing with the with the wine and the bread, they claim that it's the actual blood and the actual body of Christ, and that every time they do that, Christ is being sacrificed again. Shame on them. God's plan, and we know it, 
is that Jesus' sacrifice, when it was done, it was done forever. Never needing to be repeated. Once for all. And finally, again, a lesson for us is that Peter is a perfect example of how a person's sincere heart combined with man's thinking instead of God's can often lead us in the wrong direction, making wrong decisions and even to disaster. So again, I tell you, as I do all the time, know the things of God. Know the Word of God. Study it, know it, make it a central part of your life to know what God has to say to you. It's interesting, a person's sincere heart combined with man's thinking. Now, man's thinking is contrasted with God, so we're talking about the thinking of people in the world, the world that's controlled, ruled by Satan. And I know we often say that God's more concerned with your motives than with your actions. But that's not always true. If your motives are sincere, but your choice is wrong, it's contrary to God's will, then it shouldn't be followed. So even when our motives are good, we still need to make sure that what we're choosing, what we're deciding, what we're planning to do is in sync with the Word of God. We always need to check that out. And often that's by asking one another, running our ideas past one another, listening to what God would say to us through each other. People that we know and trust, people that we know love the Lord and know his will. Verse 24 we're told, then Jesus said to his disciples, this is right after he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said, verse 24, to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That statement, verse 24, is a continuation of what Jesus said just before. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to deny yourself and take up our cross individually. and then follow Jesus. You see, at that time, the possibility of losing their lives was very real for the disciples, as well as for Jesus. You might remember from reading through your Bible that when Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled, all except for really John and Peter. They all fled in fear. Peter even denied Christ three times in fear because Jesus had been arrested and they were known to be his disciples. We even see after the resurrection on that first resurrection Sunday that when people came to the gate the disciples in the upper room looked out carefully to see if it was soldiers coming to arrest them. We're told elsewhere that the door was locked 
in fear of soldiers coming to arrest them. So the fact of, or the possibility of them losing their lives was very real. So what Jesus is saying in verse 24 is that true discipleship means true commitment, real commitment. It means pledging our entire lives to his service. Note that here, Jesus mentions the word cross to his disciples. It's the second time in Matthew. First time was in chapter 10, verse 39. And to their disciples at that time, the mention of the word cross surely evoked a picture of a violent, torturous, humiliating death. Crucifixion was a common Roman method of execution. And the people frequently saw people stripped naked, nailed to crosses, and hanging on them, often for several days before they died. And it was done not up high on a hill in a land far away. It wasn't done up on a hill for Cecil Bill DeMille's, you know, movies. It was nailed, the cross was put right next to the road, the major roads. You will call when Jesus was crucified. People were talking to him face to face. Those crosses were only six or seven feet high. They weren't like 15 feet high, so the, 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 the victim is hanging up high. They were face to face with people who were walking by. It was done alongside these major roads for everyone to watch and to see. The Romans did it for a very clear reason. The same reason that when we do executions, it shouldn't be in a, a little back room of some prison that should be done publicly because it's meant to be a deterrent to keep people from committing capital crimes. And that's why the Romans did it. So when Jesus used this picture of his followers taking up their crosses to follow him, they knew exactly what he meant. Therefore, following Jesus, for them and for us, it means a true commitment. It means the risk of death. It means no turning back. When I wrote that, I couldn't help. I have decided to follow Jesus. You know the song, right? Sing along, you know, because there's a part of that. No turning back, no turning back. Well, that's very true. We pick up our cross to follow Christ. There's no turning back. Once someone was condemned to a cross, there was no other way for them to go. So Jesus is demanding this kind of commitment from his disciples and from us, even unto physical death. Physical death for Christians still seems to be somewhat removed from us. We know it happened, but we haven't really seen it or experienced it around us, most of us. Some of us have seen it if we've been on missions and we've been to places where Christians are still killed. But I'll give you a couple of statistics. In fact, last night, in 
Pastor Skip's sermon, he gave he gave some information that I I had written down here as a, a, a somewhat different number, but in his research, he found that since Christ was crucified to today, at least 30 million Christians have been killed for their faith. 30 million in 2,000 years. Another statistic that I know, and I've shared this with you, is that there have been more Christians killed since the beginning of the 20th century, the last century, you know, 124 years ago, there have been more Christians killed in that period of time than in all of the 1900 years before that since Christ. So the martyr of Christians isn't slowing down. It's ramping up. It's speeding up. just wanted to mention that. 30 million. Following Jesus means a total commitment even to death. And the disciples were to make this call to absolute surrender a part of the message that they and we are to proclaim to others when we share the gospel. It's more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's more than that simple statement that Bill Bright wrote when he came out with his little pamphlet. It's also a commitment that can mean sacrifice, can mean martyrdom. And by the way, the cross was not about religious ceremonies. There were no jewels on the cross where Jesus died. Nobody stood there and carved out a replica of that so they could put a string through it and hang it around their necks. It wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions. It wasn't, it wasn't about spiritual feelings. The cross was nothing but a ruthless way to torture, to kill, and to execute people. So Jesus is clearly saying that we must completely deny ourselves if we are to follow him. And by the way, he says that several times in Scripture. I always focus on Luke chapter 14. There's several in that chapter. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. In the 20th century since Jesus spoke these words, we, the church, has done a pretty good job in sanitizing and ritualizing the cross. We see people holding it in front of parades of people in funny hats and stuff. Uh, we know of monks who um, live in monasteries who always have a large wooden cross on their backs, attached, strung on their backs, a heavy cross, and they wear it all the time. As though somehow they're joining in Christ's suffering. No, the Christ was a mean, cruel, nasty thing. 
But we've sanitized and ritualized it. And yet Jesus basically said, follow me as I walk down death row daily. As I walk down death row to the room of execution. Follow me. I can't help but think of what I read in the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was one week before Germany surrendered to the Allies. Everybody knew that Germany had lost. Hitler had already shot himself and his girlfriend. They all knew, but Bonhoeffer was still in that prison that was run by the Gestapo. And I remember reading an eyewitness account of when a member of the Gestapo came into the death row and told Bonhoeffer, it's time. In fact, he said it sadly. He said it apologetically. He was just doing his job. And when Bonhoeffer heard that, he was required to strip naked and walk out to the gallows that were always there for execution. And he stood there with one or two others with the nooses put around their necks then the floor dropping out and them dropping, breaking their necks. Jesus is saying, Follow him as he goes down death row. Follow Bonhoeffer as he followed Christ. Taking up your cross isn't a round trip. It's a one-way journey. It's a lifetime of obedience and sacrifice. And I'll confess to you that I and I believe all of us haven't really discovered the depths of what that means for how we are to live. Sometimes we're pretty close. We'll spend some times in meditation and prayer, sometimes days at a time, weeks at a time. But folks, it's all the time. It's all the time. It's a one-way trip. Now, Jesus repeats this same call to life or death, obedience and submission in Mark 8.34 and in Luke four different times. Luke 9, 23, 11, 27, and I'm sorry, uh, 14, 27, and 14, 33. And then Jesus explains what he's saying a bit further. He says in verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. True discipleship means real commitment. Like I said, pledging and living our whole life, our whole existence to serve Christ. If we try to save our lives by avoiding the physical consequences of serving him, things like imprisonment, beating, death, pain, discomfort, 
other forms of suffering, being told you can't buy or sell food, things like that. If we try to avoid those things, Jesus says that we risk losing eternal life. If we try to protect ourselves from the suffering that God has called us to suffer, we begin to die spiritually and emotionally. Our lives turn inward to our own comfort and safety. That becomes our priority. And we lose God's intended purpose for us, why he created us. But when we give our lives fully, sacrificially, in service to Christ, we discover the real purpose of living, the real purpose that God created us for. There's a popular saying that's been going around the church for a long time. I don't recall who first said it, but it is true. And it reflects what Jesus says in verse 25. It's a short saying, probably you've heard it. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. I'll say it again. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. In other words, if we only experience physical birth, we will die twice. We'll die physically, and then we'll also die spiritually at the final judgment when we're condemned and experience eternal death in the lake of fire. But if we experience both physical and spiritual birth, we call it being born again, we will only have to die once, our physical death. We have to follow Jesus this way because it's the only way that we'll ever gain eternal life. But that, that phrase is so, it's so poignant, it's so clear, if you will. Born once, die twice. Born twice die once. Remember, the Bible says it's given to everyone to die once. And after that, the judgment. That's everybody. But for those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, for those of us who have surrendered to Christ, for those of us who have been and are benefiting from his sacrifice for our sins. We only, we only have to die that one time when we leave this life. That's it. Because we're born again as well as being born physically the first time. It sounds strange to say you will never truly live until you first walk to your death with Jesus. But that's the idea. You can't gain the resurrection life without dying to self first. And I'm not saying that like it's easy. It's very counter to what our society and our culture teaches is most important. It's the opposite. Okay, and then Jesus continues his explanation, verses 26 and 27. He continues and he says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each 
according to his works. The meaning here is very clear. What good is it if you get everything that the world has to offer, everything you ever wanted and many things you didn't even know you wanted? You get all the money, all the possessions, all the health, all the acclamations, all the pats on the back, all the influence, all the power. But you lose your soul. You lose eternal life in heaven. And instead, spend eternity in agony in the lake of fire. I have to ask you, is there anything that is worth that? Is there anything that is worth eternal damnation? As I was writing that, I was thinking of people in the Bible and I remember when the children of Israel were wandering and during that 40 years of wandering, they, they rebelled against God so many times. And every time, God got angry. But there's one particular time when God got so angry, he told Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm done. And Moses interceded for them, even though they had been extremely wicked. As he interceded for them, he told God, if you're going to wipe all of them out, wipe me out too. In fact, instead of wiping them out, take me out. He's willing to sacrifice for all those people. And at that time, the idea of being, being killed by God meant damnation. Moses was willing to sacrifice his eternity as best he knew it for the sake of the rebellious nation of Israel. That's the only example I could think of. As Jesus said, there are, there are people who would die for others. But again, if we know that we have eternal life, if we know that the very moment that we leave this life, we will be face to face with Christ in heaven. Spiritually, our spirit, our soul, will be in heaven. Our body is going to rot down here or be burned up or whatever. But we'll be with God. But there's nothing worth eternal death in the lake of fire. Nothing. That should be a motivation for us, by the way, to share the gospel, to share our faith with people who don't know Christ, especially our families and friends, those people that it's the hardest to share with because, oh, they might not love me anymore. They might not like me anymore. So what? So what? Isn't it worth it to give them the opportunity to have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life? To come to Christ and enjoy eternity in heaven? So what if they don't like you? It doesn't mean anything. But their eternal life, their eternal soul, is worth so much. There are times in my years as a Christian that I say something like this to people and I'm convicted. 
And I'll go and I'll write a letter or several to people who I knew who were not saved. One of them I've written to several times is my nephew, Brian. He um, He's an avid atheist, he thinks. Now, he had some medical experiences this last year where he might, he might be bending a bit on that because he told people he appreciated their prayers, their, not just their thoughts, you know, you know, and your thoughts be towards, who cares about your thoughts? Pray. Well, he, he might be bending a little bit. I pray so, and I'm going to write to him again sometime this year. And what gets me about him is that a lot of the material that he has to fight against Christianity is material that I wrote when I was an anti-Christian. So in a way, I feel guilty about his atheism, but it's always worth it to present Christ to people. That's why a few years ago I wrote, I wrote my testimony and posted it in Facebook for everybody. I got a number of positive responses, but I got many angry responses. So I was able to dialogue with these people. I've got their names listed at the, at the back of my journal, and I pray for them frequently, even though it's been several years now. And as even as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, yeah, I need to be doing more of that. We all do. We all do. But Jesus makes this explanation. What profit is it to a man or to a woman to gain the whole world and loses her soul? And despite all the naysayers, as Jesus says in, in verse 27, he says, for the Son of Man will come. Despite all the naysayers, in fact, Peter talks about those naysayers, people who say, oh, it's, it's all the same as it's always been. What good is all of your looking for Jesus' return? It's all the same. Nothing's going to change. Despite them, we know that Jesus will return in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and I believe us, and I reference you to Revelation 19, verses 11 to 14 for that. And by the way, that's also the, uh, the picture that I've posted for this message. Uh, you've probably seen it before. I used it once before, uh, I believe about a year or so ago. Jesus is going to return in the glory of his Father with his angels and with the redeemed, resurrected, and raptured church. And he's going to give each person a reward, or not, according to that person's works in this life. Now, we like to say, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith, only faith. And that's absolutely true. But once we have faith and we receive Christ, then we are required to do works, good works for Christ and for the kingdom. In fact, a verse that I read often to you, Ephesians 2, verse 10, we're told that we are his, Jesus, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, for each one of us, God has prepared the works that we should be doing. 
and that we were created for good works. That should sober all of us. Now, Jesus Christ has been given authority to judge all the earth. We read that in Romans and Philippians and elsewhere. And there is a future, final judgment when Christ returns. Again, we read about that in Revelation and in Matthew 25. We'll get there one of these months. And when Jesus does that, everyone's life will be reviewed and evaluated. This won't be confined to unbelievers. Christians will also face a judgment. Our eternal destiny <clears throat> is secure. We don't need to worry about that. But Jesus will look at how we handled the gifts, the callings, the opportunities, the responsibilities that we've been given in this life in order to determine our heavenly rewards. At the time of judgment, God in Christ will deliver the righteous and he will condemn the unrighteous. If we don't believe, receive, and follow Christ, we make choices and decisions as though there's no afterlife, no eternity, no heaven or hell. But actually, this life, the one we're in right now, is just the introduction, the prelude to eternity. How we live this short period actually determines what our eternal state will be and where it will be. The things we accumulate on earth have no value in gaining eternal life in heaven. As we often say humorously, there's no curse, there's no, excuse me, hearse that's pulling a U-Haul. Take nothing with us. <coughs> nothing with us. Even great power, influence, wealth, social, political, and military honors cannot get us into heaven. I was thinking about that actually several times in the last week as I've been driving around and I see these signs honoring our dead soldiers who have died defending our country. A memorial part of a road, the uh, Navy SEAL Danny Dietz Memorial Highway. It's part of Santa Fe. And I've often thought, I said, who would want a road named after him? Danny Dietz, wherever he is, doesn't know it and couldn't care less. But we, we, we have this need, and it's a healthy one, to remember and to appreciate the people who have sacrificed for us. But none of those things could get us into heaven. The road sign with our name on it. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.25, he says, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they, he's speaking basically of athletes and political and military heroes, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Things like wreaths and made of olive leaves or other leaves or maybe wood, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, we do it for an imperishable crown, an eternal crown. We live our, our lives in service and obedience to Christ 
for an eternal crown. An eternal crown. People say, well, how about the medals we give out? Congressional medals of honor and silver stars and, you know, all those. Well, they're perishable. They're not going to last. They, too, will burn. They will burn when this world burns. And I think about those crowns and I don't know why, but I, I have this image when Christ was crucified of that crown of thorns, thorns that were three inches long. They wove them into a crown of thorns and they jammed them onto his head. Those thorns piercing his flesh. That was a mockery of the crowns, but that's just a, an example of what was common in those days, but that was a mockery. Anyway, what our Lord will be looking for in his disciples, in each and every one of us, Are those things, those works that we have done in obedience and in service to him, the good works that we were created for. So when we evaluate our lifestyles from Christ's eternal perspective, we'll find our values, our choices, and our decisions changing. I started doing that really just last night in prayer, trying to look at myself and my life and what I do and what I don't do and looking at them through Christ's eyes. And uh, it didn't work very well because I don't have his eyes, but I do have his word. So I'm going to keep trying to do that, to look at myself from what I understand is his perspective. Because I know that it will change me in good ways. And it will change us because we'll be living from a totally different handbook. We'll be living according to the Bible, the Word of God. Now, Jesus takes a different turn in his teaching with this last verse. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, now again, he just talked about him coming in the glory of his father's kingdom, the glory of his father. He'll be coming with his kingdom. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I believe that Jesus said this at this moment to emphasize that walking with him doesn't just mean a life of sacrifices, hardship, death, and crosses. It also means a life with the power and the glory of the kingdom of God. In this verse, he promised that some of his disciples would see glimpses of that power and glory. But we'll discuss that next week as we move into chapter 17. But to return to that, the Christian life isn't all, as I said, suffering and sacrifice and crosses. There's joy. There's gladness, there's thanksgiving, there's peace. There's the, 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 the positive feelings of accomplishment in doing what the Lord's called us to do. And to be honest, I believe that all that negative pales in comparison to the joys of the life 
of living for Christ. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus. I thank you, Father, for his clear and intimate explanation to his disciples of not just the things to come quickly, his torture, crucifixion, and resurrection, but also his very clear and intimate explanation of how his disciples, including us, how we are to live and what we are to do. Father Jesus' words, even these 2,000 years later, even coming off a printed page, but coming into our minds and our hearts, Father, they are so powerful. And you've made it possible and even essential for us to have the Word of God, your Word, Jesus' Word, the Word of the Holy Spirit who actually wrote the book through inspired men. What an incredible gift we've been given, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.